everyone, and welcome to the Plant Industry News Podcast, co-hosted by Holly Hughes and Olivia Doyle with the Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services Division of Plant Industry. As a regulatory agency of the Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services, the Division of Plant Industry works to detect, intercept, and control plant and honeybee pests that threaten Florida's native and commercially grown plants and agricultural resources. Thanks for joining us. On today's episode, we'll hear from Dr. Trevor Smith from the Director's Desk. We'll be continuing our collaboration with UF's Department of Agricultural Education and Communication AEC 4036 class taught by Dr. Jamie Lewitso. We are hearing part two of the interview with Dr. Paul Skelly, Assistant Chief of DPI's Diagnostic Bureau and Head Curator of the Florida State Collection of Arthropods. from the director's desk with Trevor Smith. All right, well, hello, DPI. So this is Trevor Smith uh, from the director's office giving you an update on uh, what's been going on this month. Uh, One of the big issues we've had as far as pests is uh, we have a citrus pest that's not necessarily a new pest. Uh, We actually found it uh, back in 2010, or maybe even earlier, um, but the Levick mealy bug was actually, we, we found it on uh, several different plants, but uh, none of them were on citrus. But recently this year, we actually had uh, quite a few groves find the Levick mealy bug in high numbers. And of course, citrus growers are very sensitive to any new pests or diseases, uh, especially right now. So we went and looked into it uh, we, very quickly. We had word from IFAS that uh, they had seen this before, but it might have been going on for a while, and the mealybug might have been misidentified. It looks a little bit like citrus mealybug. It looks a little bit like uh, cottony cushion scale. So it could have been that some of the growers were kind of overlooking it, thinking it was something a little more common until it kind of exploded. So we've actually got Jason Johnson and Callie Walker and our PE&C team out there working on this now. We actually had a meeting with growers and IFAS a couple of weeks ago, and it was more of a kind of an information session to make sure the growers knew um, you know, what we were doing, uh, what kind of progress we were making, and what this particular pest means for them. And so far, it's still only been found in four or five locations in two counties in southwest Florida. And we're not exactly sure why it's exploding the way it is right now. It could be that uh, with the spray schedule that most of the growers are on for psyllids, maybe we're seeing some resistance or tolerance pop up in some of these other pests that traditionally weren't necessarily a problem, but now they might be popping up again because they're resistant Uh, There could be some other factors involved here with new technologies being used out in the field. But anyway, this is one that we're on, uh, as always, where we've got our research team involved. We've got our taxonomists involved. We're working with IFAS and UF. We're working with the growers. And and I think this is one that uh, we're just going to have to find um, some new means of, of actually dealing with it and controlling it which could just mean uh, having some new chemicals uh, being used out there or 
perhaps backing off on chemicals and allowing some of our natural predators and parasitoids to actually beat this thing back. The good news is uh, Z, Dr. Z Ahmed has actually found in a lot of the samples turned in by our inspectors, a lot of wasps, the, the parasitic wasps, and we've seen evidence that the, uh, some of the coccinellids and ladybugs have actually been feeding pretty heavily on this. So it could be the opposite of, of more treatments. It could be less treatments and, and let some of these natural enemies catch, catch up again. So there's half a dozen other new exotic arthropods that have shown up this month, but uh, none of them are, are really significant as far as pest issues. So I think I'll jump into some of the things that have been going on here at headquarters this month. And one of those was we had the Florida Youth Institute uh, come here. And this is an interesting group of high school students that have an interest in agriculture. They come to Gainesville, they visit the University of Florida, they go out to the beef unit, they learn about cattle production. Um, they come to DPI, they get to visit the museum, they get to see the collection. We give a presentation on opportunities within DPI and at FDACs for careers. And uh, it's a large group of 30 or 40 um, students one week and then a second week uh, with 30 or 40 students. And it's just a great group. It's really, I think everybody that works at DPI, and I think we all know how passionate we all are. So we love talking about what we do here. And to have an interactive group that has a, just a huge interest in what we do uh, just makes it that much better. So great conversations, uh, amazing students. I mean, these are top of the line students and very impressive kids. And uh, that was really uh, successful meetings and tours. And, and, you know, that's really the tours that we do here at DPI. I know a lot of you, especially those of you who started with us in the last year or two, we make that part of the new employee orientation. But this is a really important thing for us. It's not only an opportunity for kids with an interest in entomology or agriculture to come in and see uh, opportunities for, for them in the future, but it's also an opportunity for us to kind of passively recruit people. We have a lot of people that work at the Division of Plant Industry that their first introduction to this division was coming here as part of a tour with their high school, maybe their elementary school, homeschools groups. It's just a, it's a great opportunity for us to interact with the public and especially I mean, we have tours of all kinds of groups, but especially those younger uh, kids that come through, I think it's a very impactful place to be and, and to see that collection and to see these amazing scientists uh, talking about how excited they are about their work and all the field operations that we do. It's uh, something that um, I think sometimes we overlook the importance of it. I mean, it's, it's a focus certainly here at headquarters, but I know out there at the rest of the state, you don't necessarily know how many of those tours are coming in and, and what an impact it has on, on them and us in the future. Speaking of headquarters, I think some of you may know that we received a fixed capital outlay. Um, we received an allotment of money from the legislature about three years back to take our former irradiator building and turn it into lab and office space. 
And I am happy to say we, we are within a month or two of that entire renovation being finished. And it's going to be a really interesting building because it was a completely unique building to start with. To have a linear accelerator set up in there with, with all the associated equipment made for a really interesting project for the architects and the engineers. But they did a great job of kind of incorporating that into the new office building so that we didn't necessarily leave the past behind. It's kind of incorporated. In fact, they even left part of the linear accelerator in the meeting room so that when you're meeting, you can see that history there, what the building used to be. And of course, for those of you that haven't seen it, it's also under six feet of cement and an entire mountain of soil and plants at one end. So it is a very odd building, uh, but it's just about ready to start its new life uh, with labs and office space, and we're really excited about that. We did have, uh, on the apiary front this month, we did have a, a fairly significant bee kill. Um, I think if you look at this from an apiary perspective, the number of bees killed weren't necessary. It wasn't, it wasn't huge when it comes to an overall apiary, but it got a lot of media attention. In fact, the apiary, the owner, the beekeeper himself, contacted the media and had them out there. And uh, he was very concerned because he saw this massive die-off and it was kind of an odd situation where instead of all being dead at the front of the hive, they were kind of spread out all over the place and um, it looked like they had kind of flown out and died all over the apiary yard. It was, it was just kind of an odd scenario. So we had our apiary team out there uh, actually uh, meeting with, with the gentleman we uh, talked to AES, and AES wanted to do a residue study on some of the bees to see if there was any evidence of, of chemicals, possibly from drift from somebody in the area, or was it something else, some other kind of poisoning, or a disease, or something like that. So DPI and AES are working with the beekeeper right now to try and determine what happened and what we can do to prevent this from happening again. Of course, this is a lot like citrus. This is something that people are very sensitive to. There have been some massive bee kills in different parts of the United States, usually because people uh, either treated flowering trees, treated at the wrong time, basically just weren't following the labeled directions. That's usually what it comes down to. But occasionally you'll get drift from crop dusters and things like that or a beekeeper will move their hives and not mention it to the landowner, the landowner will treat. There's just a lot of, a lot of that's been going around lately. So this is something we need to respond to very quickly when it happens. And then lastly, this uh, month, we're gonna be heading to the National Plant Board meeting in Montana. And I'm gonna be asked at that meeting to actually give a presentation on new finds. What do we do when we have a new find from identification to delimitation to quarantines and when do we kick those things off so the national plant boards actually asked hawaii california and florida all to be on this panel to talk about what we do when we have a first find and i think a lot of the other states it, it won't be terribly surprising to them the steps we take 
The difference is we have all of the resources to take every one of those steps. Most states do not. They don't have a diagnostic section. They don't have the regulatory staff to enforce quarantines. They don't have a CAPS program and a survey staff large enough to do the delimiting surveys. So I don't know that any of this will be breaking news as far as, uh, as the way we do it, but the fact that we can do it internally within this division, uh, it, it never ceases to amaze a lot of the other states, the resources we have at hand. And I'm, I think we're all very thankful for that. I'd happily trade all of our problems to another state <laughs> and they could have our resources uh, if I could. But the fact of the matter is we need every one of those resources and more to, to deal with what we deal with. So I think that pretty much covers this month. Again, there's always a ton more to talk about, but uh, I'll get back to you next month and give you an update on uh, some of the things that went on at the National Plant Board. And, uh, and we'll talk then. Thank you. When you travel by land, sea, or air, ask, can I bring it, and declare agricultural items. With your help, we can safeguard natural resources and protect the food supply from invasive pests and disease. Whatever your destination, enjoy the journey, and remember, don't pack a pest. part two of interview with entomologist Dr. Paul Skelly. We are picking right back up where we left off in last month's episode. If you missed it, head back to episode seven. If you enjoy this interview and want to hear similar content produced by students in Dr. Lewitso's class, visit www.streamingscience.com. But for now, let's get back to it. So we get, we get the opportunity to be a little little flexible in what we propose. For, we still have to be, still has to be, uh, honorable is the wrong word, um, ethical. It still has to be something that's not profane. You know, it's got to be, a, you know, a, a, a good word or a good reasoning. And when I name species, I either like to use a theme. If, say, I have a genus where I've got 10 new species, well, I might theme the names like one group was a genus of flightless beetles there was one species described i had nine new ones and i thought all right i'm going to do this name follow a theme so i named them all after flightless birds i thought the flightlessness was a connection well some of my colleagues didn't appreciate that for some reason but i'm sorry it's done working on another group now where every species is red the whole group is red so we're looking at theming the names to be based on different languages uh, word for the color red so we can do that other things I like to do is is to name species for something specific to them like their biology or a, a morphological structure they have that that makes them distinct from the others so that then when you when you look at a name if you know a little bit of the latin the greek or whatever was used to derive the name you understand something about the species without even reading the description but then we also get a chance in entomology to put a little tongue-in-cheek in some of our names and and to do things that you know might be questionable in other fields but it's it's perfectly good one thing i recently did 
Uh, I'm working on a group of flightless dung beetles. So being flightless, the populations tend to be very isolated. And we had what ended up being a new species on the east side of uh, Mount Hood out in Oregon. And I'm struggling with the name because these beetles literally all look alike. And so I'm trying to find something to name it. Well, after we collected it, we recognized it was a species that had little teeth on its head. And so we were calling it the, the, the toothed Mount Hood species just between us to, to figure out what was going on. Well, when we were discussing all these different species, so we know which one we were referring to just in our discussions before we got the descriptive phase. And so I struggled with that name for ages. And then I finally stumbled onto something that sort of had a dual meaning. And so sometimes my names have dual meanings. This one did. I took, the genus was Stenothorax, and we called it the Mount Hood Steno for short. So we took Mount Hood Steno, or I should say I took, I can't blame my co-author, he, he didn't like us, but I took Mount Hood Steno, rearranged the letters to form the name Odontomontius, which is Greek and Latin, which is also against the rules, but I've, I've formalized it so it's acceptable. Odonto means tooth, mountain, montane means mountain. So the toothed one from the mountain, which fit the morphological character of this one having a tooth, and it meant the Mount Hood Steno. So it just all tied together to, to come up with the name. Other times we use things like you know, patronyms, name them for people or colleagues. There's, there's all sorts of things you can do. I think that whole process of not only discovering something new, but also having to name it is really interesting. That's so cool to me. A lot of people are afraid to do it, but if, if they've got solid evidence, it's just like a school report. Here's the formalized way to do it. Yeah. So in some of these countries that you go to, I can imagine the cultures and the laws are very different than here. So what impact do those different laws and cultures have on the collection of arthropods? For any, any natural history collection dealing with international movement of specimens, you have all the laws. Every And all the agencies in all the countries have the different laws and you have to comply with all of them. So there's import laws, export laws, um, let's see, genetic heritage laws, phytosanitary laws, I mean, you know, and also the laws regarding can specimens be borrowed from, the, from those you know, institutional rules. And so in order for us to do a lot of the specimen exchanges so that we can do the work that's necessary, we have to comply with all these different laws from all these different countries, and it is, it is onerous at times, yes. So what impact does that have on That can have? severely limit us being able to do our jobs we need to identify something. Our colleague in another country may have the only specimen. We have to see it for whatever reason. Digital imagery won't work. I mean, digital imagery is wonderful. We use it daily, but sometimes you have to study the specimens. Like some of the, some of the, some of the, uh, some of the studies I do are called revisionary studies, mm -hmm. where the general idea is to in a revision is to amass everything that's known about the group, which includes studying all the miscellaneous specimens you can see. Now, if you're going to do it right, 
you're going to borrow materials from all sorts of countries to be able to get them together, to be able to, to study them side by side, and then be able to come up with your taxonomic hypothesis. If you've got to go to every country to do this, you're going to be missing out on the side-by-side -side comparisons. You're going to be missing out on all sorts of other potential things because, hey, I'll go to this country, I'll study this bug, and then I get back or I go to another place and I find out, oh my gosh, no, I have to restudy that one again. So this, this exchange, it's, it's, it's an exchange, but it's, it's borrowing. So they all get returned. Yeah. But, we, but in order for those specimens to, to be legally sent in and out of the countries, we have to jump through all those hoops. And um, it, it, it just gets to be a huge, hugely difficult to be able to really pull together large studies fighting all these different laws. I mean, if, if, say, I was revising a group that was purely Mexican, well, all right, that's one country. But most of these insects don't know a hoot about international borders. So if I'm studying a group, I'm studying everything in Central America, not just Mexico or South America, which as we know is multiple countries. And so it just becomes one of the hurdles we have to deal with. I can imagine how that can be kind of difficult and almost discouraging when you're oh, trying to do the research. Some of them take months of, of preparation and sending documents and, and getting replies from the government agencies if, if they get around to replying. Gotcha. Yeah. So what have you worked on on, you know, maybe one specific trip you've been on or something you've been on recently um, or just on these trips in general? What what is the purpose of going to these other countries and doing research? What does the actual research look like? What's the actual research look like or what's the purpose of going on the trips? The purpose of going on the trips is to get out of the office. <laughs> um, no, honestly, the, the purpose of the trips is to well, let's say feed the need, that thrill for discovery. Call me a, a discovery junkie. You know, you, you find that and it's just, ah. So the only way to have that happen is to, to travel, to go do these things. And so frequently on these trips, we have a goal. It's like, all right, we're looking for this group of beetles or we're looking for this species so that we can, we can study it. But while you're there, you're looking for other stuff. And frequently, it's that side catch, those, those serendipitous discoveries that actually make the trip worthwhile. But if you're not out in the field, if you're not up on this mountainside on that day when something is running around, you miss it totally. So it's it, like I've got some trips planned where I'm going to be going out west w with a friend, and we're going to be picking up some traps that he set for some of these insects. And I don't know if you follow the weather, but I'm going to California, but they've had a fair amount of rain recently, a lot. In fact, he, my friend's like, oh, my God, Paul, these, your, our traps are gone. They got flooded out, literally washed down the river. So, okay, well, others are not, but let's just go see what we can find. And with all that rain, who knows? My beetles might be washed out of their holes and running all over the place. We may have a phenomenal, I don't know what to expect. But like I said, we have a goal of what research we're going to try to do, and then we'll just play it by ear and see what else we find. So never the same thing twice. Never the same thing twice. That's a good way to put it. Yep. Even, even on trips where, okay, we did go here, we did catch that. The next time we go, even if it's the same time frame, the weather pattern might have been different. They may be active. They may not be active. 
so many yeah. different variables oh, that play into what might turn up and yep. yes. what your research might look like. So it's different every time. Every There's no time. mold that it fits into for your job. Not, not, just not with field work. Yeah. Mm -mm. It seems like the goal of some of these trips, most of these trips almost, are to find something new or to find the next piece to that puzzle. Um, well, if the trip, okay, I, 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 of course, got excited and talked about the field work, the fun stuff. Sometimes these trips are business-related, and you go to some agricultural setting, and you work with the local officials, and you look for those bugs, and you survey for them, and you do what you can. And, I mean, that's, it, it's, it's, even then, it can still be exciting. We've, let's say, we don't have a certain pest here in Florida. So part of my education is to try to get trips to go to some countries where they are dealing with the pest so that I can see them in the field, again, discover them and, dis and observe what they're doing so I can have, a, a, well, I can have an idea and be uh, ahead of the game. If they show up in Florida, then we have that expertise here. Where do we look? What do we look for? It's not always, you know, these pests aren't always just sitting in front of you saying, hey, here I am. You gotta, you gotta look for signs. You know, is what about this little bit of, what about that leaf that's a little bit yellow, or what about the way this is folded? Or you gotta sort of have these clues and have that expertise. So, some of the trips are job related, absolutely. So having that background knowledge on what if and what could happen and what to look for, you mm -hmm. can think back to that one time you traveled somewhere. And yes. Make yes. those connections between. And, and we, and then I can help train people here. Once they show, once hopefully they didn't, things never show up, but once they do, then we'll have the expertise. But having said that, we always double dip. All right, when you're off the clock, what do you do? Well, a lot of people, once that eight to five is done, we go back to the hotel and do whatever. Uh, not entomologists. Once we're off the official clock, we're in the field doing other stuff, looking for other things. So 16 hour days on a field trip is nothing. Wow. Seven days a week. It's it's a labor of love. I believe it. Again, once you get once you get that discovery and that little bit of adrenaline going, I, you can't describe it. As a student, I didn't understand it either until I made my first discoveries. Then I understood, and it's been lifelong after that. So, what would you say the most interesting arthropod you have discovered is? Would it be that first one that was just so exciting for you? Or is there just one specific discovery that stands out to you as just the most impressive? Well, okay, it, it's sort of a series of discoveries. And I, I you know, we, well, you cut this out. You asked these questions earlier, and I hadn't thought about this until just now. When I was a student, I was working under my advisor whose strength was scarab beetles of Florida. And he had spent his career collecting beetles in Florida, his group, and so everybody was like, okay, well, he's been here his whole career, he's caught everything. Well, we had another person, another specialist visit, working on a different group of beetles, who said, hey, Paul, there's this species, it's only known from one specimen, it was collected west of town here, why don't you go out and see if you can find it for us? So I, I did a little research on the species, and the, 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 the expert gave me some hints on where to look. So I went out at the, the, the time period when the one known specimen was collected. I set a couple of beetle traps. 
I went back the next morning. I had three of them. Oh, I was excited. Oh, well, then also sitting in here were a few other scarab beetles. Okay, so I brought them back to my professor. And he's like, I've never seen those before. Wow. I spent the next year and a half trapping insects in that locality, and I discovered five new species of the group my advisor worked on. Now, as a student, oh, my God. Yeah. That's thrilled. Yeah. Well, it also comes to be, comes to the, don't assume anything until you've done it your way. We can think somebody has, oh, they've worked on that group their whole career. They know everything. Well, no, the way to get the good stuff is to do things differently. So, and we've learned, we've got a lot of colleagues who are collecting different groups of insects. And so I do things my way and I catch these species in my groups they do something different. Maybe it's just simply they go out at a different time of day and they get different species in my group. So it's, it's constantly learning, not just our own observations, but everybody we collaborate with to find it. It's just, again, the thrill of discovery. It's like, you caught what? Oh my gosh. And then you go out and you try to reproduce that and catch your own and learn about them and yeah, it's nonstop. I don't know how anybody can study anything except insects at this point. There's always something new going on, and that's just that's just the thrill of discovery as far as the species that are around you. When it comes to, like, our business, we're Florida. We're a sentinel state. We have stuff showing up all the time that we've never seen, and our first question is, is this a Florida species or something from some other part of the planet? It becomes a little bit of work after that to try to find out and discover what species that is and is it a problem or isn't it a problem so so here we're taking the the that thrill of discovery and that knowledge of everything that's going on and trying to actually apply that knowledge besides just the research and describing new species you take that expertise and you apply it to real life scenarios where you've got to figure out as fast as possible what this is and what threat it might pose yeah it's great stuff. It's nonstop. It's yeah, nonstop. I, I can imagine. The, the, the numbers we have recognized here in Florida, the last couple of years, well, actually, we've got records going way back. But the last few years, we have been recognizing two to two and a half species potentially established in Florida a month. And that's only what we've recognized from what is being sent in. We actually don't have the funds to do serious survey work to, to, see, anybody, to see what else is out there. These are things that have shown their head up typically in some sort of agricultural commodity or field or monitoring trap that we've got for some other pests. But we, we thoroughly enjoy working with our, our regional, their avocationalists. It's like their passion in life is to, to collect the insects around them. They're not employees, they're our, but they're still very vital to what we do because they know what's going on in their area and when they see something different, they'll contact us. Those people are constantly coming up with new records also. So I just, I just cringe to think if we are officially recognizing, let's say two a month, potentially established, and these aren't always pests, these are just insects, my gosh, what are we missing? Yeah, wow, that's really... It explodes, it's, it's, the whole thing starts snowballing. Yeah. yeah, well that's really awesome that there are people who are just as passionate, even if it's not their... Yes, I, ca- 
You're right. Mm -hmm. I count my blessing because I'm one of the avocationalists that got a job doing what I love. So as we start to wrap up this podcast, I just want to know what you want the listeners to learn about you and your research. If they had one key takeaway from this podcast, from everything you shared with us, what would that be? Wow. Okay. Well, since you brought up the FSCA and, and what my type of research is, as far as a message for the public, it would basically be don't don't dispel the, the importance of the foundation level research, the importance of natural history collections. Here in the Department of Agriculture, we find it vital to have these resources available. My research is not molecular. It's not high course phylog or high level phylogenetic analyses. Mine is simply recognizing and describing the biodiversity that exists. And as anybody in the field will tell you, we are nowhere close to being done, even with what exists in Florida. We're constantly finding undescribed species. And it's it just, I would just say, just keep that in mind, that a lot of what we can say about organisms are, and what exists are based on what we know. It's the volume that most of us in the field realize we don't know that scares us. And that's why we do what we do. So for our listeners here at DPI, we had a request to find out a little bit more about you, like on a personal level and what kind of hobbies you enjoy doing outside of all your research and work here. Oh, my gosh. Um, I'm one of those that will have a list of hobbies that would go, you know, all the way down to your arm and out the door. Um, The ones that I do find most pleasure with is I like to do woodworking. Um, I've made some pieces of furniture at home that, you know, they're not really high quality, but it's still, I made it and it's usable it's so it's it's fun yeah um some of the other things i i i don't know if this can be called a hobby it still relates to the woodworking but i have a very difficult time throwing stuff away because i can always do something with it Mm -hmm. i can always turn it into something that's usable one of the recent things i did was um my wife has a hobby in bonsai and bonsai when you display them you display them on these little stands or slabs of wood Frequently, they're, they're very ornate little tables. But other times, they're like amorphous masses of, of something that just it has character. And I was cutting firewood one day, and I cut something, and I looked at the grain, which was, it was a rotten piece of wood. And I thought, hmm, that looks interesting. So I slabbed it, and I put some varnish on it, and it had character. And the people in the bonsai group went absolutely nuts oh my gosh, you can't buy anything like this. Well, they're right, you can't. And they said, well, yeah, we'll pay you 10 bucks for it. And I thought, 10 bucks, well, 10 bucks for a piece of firewood? I've got a retirement hobby. Yeah. You know, and so just creating those, so, so I, like, I like to create things. And so the, the woodworking is one way I, I take care of that. You know, obviously, based on this whole podcast, you know, insect collecting, I love just going out, hiking, and just seeing what's going on. Just take chilling, we'll call it. Um, as far as something actually productive, 
one of the beetle groups I work on are the pleasing fungus beetles. That's what I got my master's on. So I got initiated into mushrooms, and I love to eat mushrooms, so I grow shiitakes. Cool. So that's, that's something a little more normal that people might be you know, used to hearing for hobbies, but no, I, I don't, you know, I watch sports, but I'm not rabid about it. I, I just like doing things and creating things. All right. Well, thank you so much, Paul, for taking your time to share with us your research and what you're doing here at DPI on the podcast today. We really enjoyed hearing from you and definitely appreciate you being on the podcast Uh, today. it's, It's been fun. With the arrival of hurricane season, now is the time to start planning ahead and preparing your apiaries and plants for these massive storms. Check out our blog series on hurricane preparedness to get you ready before a storm hits. Blog posts cover a variety of topics and are published regularly at fdaxdpi.wordpress.com. This is the Division Digest. like to share that Denise Ham has returned to DPI to work in the personnel office. She will be training with Denise Salazar-Bell and responsible for vacancy recruitment, new employee sign-up, and assisting with employee relations. She has worked with the department 18 years, 17 of those here at DPI. Welcome back, Denise. We would also like to announce the promotion of Christina Bice to the position of Environmental Supervisor 1 for the Avon Park CHIRP office. Christina has been with FDAX DPI since 2007 when she started as a regulatory assistant and senior clerk. In 2012, she was promoted to Environmental Specialist SES Survey Supervisor. She has been recognized for her time spent on the 2004 hurricane relief effort and has also assisted with emergency control programs, including 2010 MedFly program in Boca Raton and Pompano Beach. Congratulations, Christina, on your promotion. Glenn Gardner, a GIS specialist in the CAPS program, was recently awarded a Special Achievement in GIS, or SAG, award. Here's Glenn to share more about this accomplishment. The SAG award is a Special Achievement in GIS, which is given out by ESRI, a company who is the provider of our GIS software. And they're an international company that uh, provides GIS software to the full industry across the world and globe. The award is uh, selected by, from uh, their employees and other non-employees who use their software, who and contractors who use their software that uh, are submitted to them by their uh, sales representatives and other people in the industry as appropriate to, re- to deserve an award. Um, I was submitted by our sales representative here that handles the state of Florida. He's a sales representative for all the states of Florida and two other states. And uh, it's uh, given up to about 100, usually around 150 people a year internationally. Uh, this year it was 170 and I was one of the ones selected to get it. About three years ago, we collaborated, I collaborated with the company on a, a solution program, which they do for all customers. They, it's a knowledge process of transferring knowledge and in, in, in base programs to help people start their own programs. What I did was work with them to come up with a, a survey system of mobile device collection for invasive pest species 
that ties back into USDA's NAPIS database. So it was marketable to every single state and, and CAPS program across the country to be able to use this program to do their mobile data field collection, come back to the office, review it, provide reports on it, display it on, on web maps in the, in the cloud, and, actually, and provide reports back to the NAPIS system in a format that it needed. Thanks for tuning in to Plant Industry News. We appreciate our special guests for keeping us informed and updated. Follow us on social media at FDAXDPI. Be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have any questions, suggestions, or announcements you think should be included, email us at dpi-blog at freshfromflorida.com. This podcast was produced in part by Olivia Doyle and Holly Hughes. Don't bug us. We'll have another episode next month.